welcome to Cream of Caroline, the reigning champion of casserole lifestyle podcasts. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. I am so excited to share this episode with you. I spoke with Lucas Volker, the editor of Jari Magazine, about James Beard and queer food culture. And his newest cookbook, Start Simple, 11 Everyday Ingredients for Countless Weeknight Meals. He didn't mean to, but it is perfect timing for everyone cooking at home right now as we are staying safe and sheltering in. My chat with Lucas via Zoom, so forgive any strange audio, also inspired two casseroles. And I'm going to save the recipe reveal for the end of our interview. So we're switching up the format just a little bit today. But do not worry. They're going to be creamy. Casseroles in the news. The musical duo Heart Bones released their debut indie record Hot Dish last week featuring Sabrina Ellis and Sean Tillman. Of the title, Ellis says, it's Minnesota's cute word for casserole. It's a fun tradition and a fun part of American culture. Also, it sounds kind of sexy. If you don't know what's a casserole, hot dish sounds like you're a 1950s photographer and you want a polite way of being like, I'm taking nudes today. Check out the album on Spotify and iTunes. The casserole giving continues in Huntsville, Alabama this week with Operation Drumstick and the distribution of 5,000 ready-to-eat casseroles to folks who are in need of a hot meal. And finally, White Castle just released their top 10 slider recipes in honor of National Hamburger Month. Some of the winners included White Castle Vidalia Dip, in which Vidalia onions are added to sliders, mayo, Swiss cheese, and bacon to create a dip to serve with crackers. And then there's the White Casserole, a timeless classic, including White Castle sliders, cheese, milk, eggs, and a little seasoning. And that's your casseroles in the news. Okay, listeners, we have today calling in from Reno, Nevada. Yes, we have Lucas. Uh, yeah, Stateline, Nevada. <laughs> Stateline, Nevada, Lucas Volker, who is a cookbook author, editor, recipe developer, and founder of Jari Magazine. Welcome. Thank you, Caroline. And, and so tell, we were just having a quick pre-podcast chat. What are you doing in Reno or Stateline, Nevada? Stateline, Nevada. So I'm here with uh, my partner, Vincent. We had plans this year to, we actually bought a property up here um, earlier this year and had plans to open up a cafe. I've had sort of been dreaming of this little sandwich shop for a while now. And um, we finally, in some ways, pulled the trigger on that. But um, the cafe itself is on hold, but I am out in Nevada <laughs> for the okay. time being. Now, and have you ever worked in restaurants or has most of your, have most of your efforts been on the recipe development side? I worked in restaurants before I did any recipe development stuff. I, okay. when, growing up, I worked at a bakery in Boise, Idaho, okay. where um, I loved, that's where I fell in love with food. I just love food on that scale, like all the, you know, 50 pounds of butter out on the table. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that much. One of my tasks was just like bagging cinnamon swirl bread, but I also got to help make scones and stuff like that. And I just loved that. And then in college, I worked as a prep cook and a line cook after I moved to New York. 
Okay. Um, and then I worked in book publishing for a while, and then I went back to restaurants in a lesser capacity at this um, great spot in Brooklyn called 61 Local. Yeah. And I've done some like catering and professional chefy stuff here and there. But, so all um, the things. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm like, a, I was a flunky prep cook uh, slash line cook in college, but that's my only, that's my only dip into the industry, so. Um, good to have some. <laughs> yes, no, it is good to have some, at least for perspective. So, and your work, of course, this is a James Beard focused season, and I feel like you and Jari intersect with that in a lot of ways. But before we dive into that, uh, I always like to start with casserole history with my guests. Mm-hmm. Um, did you grow up eating any casseroles? Oh my God, yes. That is so. I grew up in Idaho um, in the 80s and early and through the 90s. And um, I think casseroles were my, my mom did most of the cooking in our family and the casseroles were her lifeline. And the one that I remember the most, it was called Shirley Allen casserole. Oh my gosh. I, <laughs> what does that mean? I, think I, I, I don't have it here, but there's like a recipe card somewhere, but it's like ground beef and cream of mushroom soup mm-hmm. and like shell pasta. And I think there's like Velveeta cheese or something in there, but it's all sort of glopped <laughs> together and then baked in nine by 13. And then our freezer was just like stacked with them. So it was like one of those oh. things was, was kind of constantly in the rotation. <laughs> was, she, was she a working mom or was she just involved in like a million projects with your family and everything in the community? She, um, she didn't work outside the home in, well, when we were young, but as soon as I was old enough to like, sort of, we were old, my brother and I were old enough to be about home by ourselves after mm-hmm. school, we went back to work. Yeah. I mean, I obviously grew up with a heavy rotation of casseroles. Otherwise there might not be much context for a casserole. Like I was going to say, yeah. Pod, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I love them. And this has been just an interesting opportunity to make recipes that I find sometimes horrifying, but are interesting and that yeah. I would never never delve into. Um, but you have a totally non-casserole oriented cookbook out right now. Just <laughs> released February. Yes. Start simple. 11 everyday ingredients for countless weeknight meals. Yes. Tell me about that project. Well, this, um, this is my fourth cookbook and it's, um, I feel like this is the one where I kind of found my groove in terms of formalizing the way I cook when I am cooking at home. Um, and the things that I've learned over the years of being in my kitchen. Um, but I wrote it really, I, I wrote for a couple reasons. One was wanting to help people learn how to cook with the ingredients that they got and to learn how to um, cook improvisationally, which um, the book isn't, isn't, the full scope of it isn't to teach you how to cook with whatever ingredients you have, but it's um, beginning the process of familiarizing yourself with this set of 11 ingredients. And sort of getting into the headspace of knowing that once you have those ingredients on hand, you'll know how to make a meal out of them and then take those lessons into the, you know, making the recipes your own and sort of branching out from there. And um, a lot of the genesis for that was trying to help my brother who lives out here in Reno. Um, He has, he and his wife have two kids and they have two dogs and they have both work full time at totally crazy lives they're always wanting to eat healthier, eat more vegetables and um, just not meal plans that never really stuck. Um, they're always trying to like do these things that are like a complete overhaul of their lives. Like I feel like these meal plans can like consume your life. Right. Um, and so I was trying to think of something that might be like easy enough for them to incorporate into their busy lives. And so I just started with the grocery store. So it's like, just remember to pick up these things and then we've got easy recipes once you get home. Yeah. So we have, Sweet, was sweet potatoes, tortillas, eggs, yeah. cabbage, beans, greens, 
squash, mushrooms, tofu, summer squash. I guess it's winter and summer. Yeah. <laughs> and call ca- and, ca- and cauliflower. And that's, I mean, it's one thing I cook occasionally from recipes, but I'm much more improvisational just because I hate rules in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found my husband picked out a few recipes for me to cook during this time of sheltering in. And it's so impractical to go out for ingredients yeah. uh, to, to make these recipes work. So we're, we're doing, a, I'm doing a lot more creative cooking with what we have right now for sure. Oh yeah. Good. What um, what's the best meal that you've had since you've been holed up? What oh I just so I'm kind of having a love affair with blocks of cream cheese right now. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and I've been, I was craving like creamy pasta, and I've been craving like sog paneer, but I don't have heavy cream. Um, I haven't had like I don't know heavy cream. Heavy cream was one of the things that I haven't thought to pick up and I haven't had on hand. And so it's like, well, let's just see what cream cheese can do for this. And so the other mm-hmm. night I made, I like used all my greens, which are threatening to expire. And I, I creamified it with um, cream cheese and some milk. And I was actually really like the tang and the sort of consistency was really nice. And it made me remember all my mom's junior league cookbooks where like cream cheese is yeah. practically every recipe. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is kind of a fun headspace to enter. What, what can you do? What can't, what can't you do with cream cheese? I don't know. That's the question on my mind right now. <laughs> I did, um, Asha Gomez has a sog paneer uh, variation and it's with sour cream oh, yeah. um, for the tang factor. And I could not get paneer, so I used halloumi, which was which worked to hold yeah. up to it, but was very squeaky in my <laughs> in my teeth. But I also, yes, I'm on the same wavelength, using up whatever greens I have before. Yeah, oh, I should say I made that with tofu and not paneer. I didn't okay. have paneers either. <laughs> so... What, I mean, what are some recommendations you have for people who are at home right now? Well, I feel like um, the way I wrote my book was so not with a pandemic in mind. I don't think anybody, obviously, nobody was planning on this really. But um, no, no the, one was planning even after they knew about it. So, uh. yeah. <laughs> but um, all the ingredients that I included in here are ones that I chose them because they're pretty like easy to find. They keep for a, a good amount of time. And then within my chapters on each of the ingredients, I like sort of developed ways to like hold on to them as long as possible. So with like my green, I'm always, I need greens. I'm always eating greens. And that's like, it just kind of has to be a part of every meal but um when you're only going to the grocery store every two weeks it's hard to keep keep them on hand if you're working with fresh greens so i've been doing my like marinated greens where you like you wash them and cook them and season them and, and marinate in some like dried spices and olive oil mm-hmm. and then i have my greens in whatever sort of format i want to eat them later on so that's been a really helpful trick i've also been falling deep in love again with cabbage it's crazy yield and it's cheap factor and yeah. it's, it's total versatility. And I'm trying to recommend everybody just make sure they keep cabbage on hand. Yeah, the yield thing with cabbage is too much. Cause when I'm feeding two people, I'm like, Jesus Christ, if I have I to eat more cabbage, <laughs> I'm going to kill somebody. Ah. Um, and you also describe your diet as sensible. Um, if you were making a sensible casserole, I mean, those two, those sensible casserole doesn't, that seems to be a little oxymoronic to me. Um, what, how would you, what would a sensible casserole be to you? I guess what I, I'm curious how a casserole is defined. So it's interesting this season, um, specifically cause I'm, because I'm cooking James Beard recipes, he's really thinking about it in a traditional French manner in which if you cook something in a, in a casserole dish, in the okay. oven, um, whether that's a 
uh, like a can sort of thing? Yes, or? exactly. Or um, just a Dutch oven. He's defining it as a casserole. Uh, but obviously in the American in the American sense and what we know and understand, to me, it's an amalgam of at least three in three disparate like types of ingredients uh, all baked together for convenience sake. Okay. I wonder, so the last book that I wrote was called Bowl, and it was about like bowl food in terms mm-hmm. of vegetables and fun stuff. And I wonder if a casserole is sort of like a baked bowl. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And I've, I've, I've thought the same thing too, because I've, uh, my mom did a casserole growing up, one of the first food memories I have, and she had really terrible uh, venison sausage. My dad shot a deer and it was, she hated it, but she did like rice, cream of celery, celery, this sausage and we ate it like every week until the sausage was gone. Um, But then as an adult shopping at Marlowe and daughters, I picked up similar ingredients and made something that was a warm savory bowl and not thinking about it. And it it, like, it just, the taste memory just exploded and and it uh, minus the cream of mushroom. Okay. That was the only thing that was missing that binding ingredient. Yeah, but that could be, it's like a de, or a bowl is a deconstructed casserole. <laughs> it's the modern casserole, perhaps. Yes. Um, yeah. And I do, um, I stalked your eating habits also via Grub, um, I have Grubhub on my mind. It's not Grubhub, Grub Street. Oh, the Grub Street Diet? Yeah. And I just want to say that our palates are aligned. Oh, um, good. I'm a cottage cheese lover. Okay, good. And, I'm, and a martini drinker. And a uh, long time decades old Rancho Gordo fam, not one of these new kids on the block. And also uh, the only olive to eat is like Castle Beltrano olive. So there we go. Do we have everything in common? And I didn't even know you like cream cheese. So now this is very serious. (laughs) I'm so sad I didn't get to cook for you. Now, so so let's let's talk about Jari. Uh, for listeners who don't know, um, kind of tell me, tell me about the heart of the magazine and, and the Genesis story. So Jari is um, what we call, our tagline is, is a queer food journal. Um, we launched it five years ago, which is crazy, in 2015. And at that time when we launched it, the tagline was, and I still think this is a genius tagline, but the tagline was men plus food plus men. <laughs> and we were thinking of it as like a gay man's food magazine and then yeah. early on we sort of realized that was like a limiting scope for the magazine so we expanded it to make it a queer food journal and to fully sort of embrace the you know the queer community and all the stories and all the great food stories in there um but it's sort of the genesis of it is that for myself as um you know a cook wanting to learn more history of more history about like food figures and just sort of understand the context of food a little bit more. I was always surprised to learn about, I was surprised first when I learned about James Beard that he was Mm -hmm. gay. And I was surprised to find at the time that his being gay was very much a footnote to his legacy rather than sort of like a, an important um, aspect of his life. Um, And then it was sort of the same thing with Craig Claiborne. And I found it to be the same thing with Richard Only. And it just seemed kind of like, and then there was John Birdsall's amazing essay, America, Your Food is So Gay, that really synthesized those things in in my mind. And um, it seemed like an important and interesting world to study um, and to create like an outlet where we can sort of put some of those histories to paper, um, a place to explore some of the histories. and then in tandem with that, um, I've been in various aspects of food for a while now, and I've always been struck by how um, 
gay people and queer people have been drawn to the restaurant industry, been drawn to like food styling and food media, um, and uncovering more and more of these people in the world of like cookbooks. Um, and I wanted to create, you know, a, a, a community. It was like a community that I just wanted to be part of as much as created. I, just, I wanted these people to be my friends. And so those are really the two things that um, made Jari take shape. And so um, I met my, my two partners, Alex and Steve, and Steve's the creative director. And we put together, you know, our first issue through Kickstarter. And then it's just been kind of evolving since then. And it's an independent magazine. And so given that there's um, not a super reliable schedule and um, <laughs> having to raise funds. And it's, it's definitely a product of passion more than it is. There's, there are, are no sort of like economic incentives for us, but um, it's really been a lot of fun. And it's been like a pretty significant aspect of my professional life for the past five years. And it's definitely like helped me like find my corner of the food world and the people that I want to work with and the people I'm really excited to, to support. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's, yeah, it's been a really wonderful thing to be involved in. How do you, how do you define queer food? Eater had a really, had an interesting quote or headline or something. They said, there's no such thing as queer food, but once you start looking, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, what is, what does that mean to you? Um, I don't know how to define it. I mean, I, I always, I, people always ask that question and they, it, when we first launched and we called us ourselves more of like a gay food magazine, mm -hmm. we were introducing this concept to a lot of people of gay food and that really stopped them in their tracks. And they're like, what is gay food? What about food is gay? And we did like an event called gay food 101. And th th that was the topic and it never really got rolling. People, you know, like, like intellectually people couldn't quite wrap their heads around it. And then a few months later we did another event called inside the queer kitchen. And with that, there was absolutely no like resistance. Everyone was like, oh, I'm, I'm interested in entering this space um, because I think it conjures a sensibility about food, a sensibility about the physical space, a sensibility about the people inside that space. Um, and I think I'll say in terms of what I'm learning, you know, like the queer community is like not a monolith at all. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> giant and like within it are so many people and everybody has like their own perspective a lot of people have a lot of really strong opinions like what's queer food to one person is a very different thing to another queer person and what queer food is to them um and so i, I mean i sort of end up coming around by saying that it's queer food is kind of whatever you make it and um and that we want jari to be a place where we can continue to explore what it means and what it is and who the people are that are involved in that conversation yeah, and celebrate all of the contrasting views and, and humans who, who make it. Right? Yeah. Um, do you think, how, did Beard have any influence on, on queer food culture? I mean, obviously, he's like the founding father of American cooking. I was going to say the first daddy of American food or something like that, but <laughs> not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a, a Beard scholar in any way, and I've, I've, a lot of what I've learned about um, Beard has been from John Birdsall, who right. has a new biography coming out later this year. Um, and what I've learned from him is that like he was, you know, he lived out and proud in the, you know, Greenwich Village during his life. And I mean, I think for, personally, he wasn't really, you know, he didn't have anything to hide. But I think his people and like his early biographers and sort of the food media establishment all, always sort of went to pains and they probably thought they were acting in his best interest and um, and to sort of contain that and to um, 
not have him being gay really like have anything to do with his recipes and his platform. I think looking back on it, like John's going to have a lot of really interesting insights and um, I'm excited to see the stuff that he's found because he's gone and talked to a lot of, um, a lot of his colleagues, a lot of his lovers, a lot of, you know, that his whole world. Right. Um, and I think that, I think that he's going to have an interesting perspective on that. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm deflecting that question a little bit. You're but fine. I don't, I don't now John just... and I are in touch. So we'll, <laughs> well, Dick, yeah, it's my, my, it's like the only, the clue that's left for me visually is going to dine at the beard house and seeing this like super sexy bedroom area with mirrors on the ceiling yeah. and then the wild bathroom. You're like, this is a gay, this is a gay apartment. <laughs> totally. They couldn't, they couldn't take it away. Uh, Another important part of your work, Ajari, is the Eat Queer Directory. Yes. How new is, how long has that been in existence? We launched that at, for Pride last summer. So that, oh, okay. um, Steve, Steve Vickstow, the creative director of the magazine, he'd had this idea for a while for the Eat Queer Directory. And I honestly was like, I don't know, are people going to use that? Is this, and then I, for whatever reason, it took us a while to get it um, fully into motion, but we launched it in June. And, um, and the whole idea is that it's, um, community driven. So anybody can submit their restaurant, submit or food or drink establishment, bakery, coffee shop. And we established a little bit of a criteria, which is, um, is this owned by um, queer people? Is the chef a queer person? Does it have a queer vibe? Does it support queer causes? Um, or is there, or like there's an other field. So we're mm -hmm. trying not to be too prescriptive about what it means to be um, in a, a, an eat queer establishment. But um, the second we launched that, it was just so exciting. It's like dictated a lot of my, you know, when, one day we'll be able to travel again. But when I do travel, I love going on to eat queer to see what people have submitted there. And is it an app or is it on the website or how are people? Website, yeah, eatqueer.com. Okay, it's the best place to access it. Yeah, it's so, it's amazing. I. Uh, my husband and I went upstate to Hudson this summer. Uh, have you been to Little Deb's? Little Deb's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, it's um, like the queerest restaurant I could possibly imagine walking into and the vibe and the people and like how fabulous and inclusive it was and seeing people that look like my dad uh, and everybody's just hanging out, um, which is, which for me, it's, it's, the it's the inclusiveness that is that kind of magical feeling in the community um, yeah. from my perspective. Um, I'm just surrounded by all the, all the boys, <laughs> the best friend boys. So, well, that, um, that Eater article, I think if I'm thinking of the same one by Kyle Fitzpatrick, he has this great theory that like queer food is about taking ingredients that shouldn't go together and somehow making them work. And I feel like the food at Little Deb's Oasis is exactly that. It's oh, like yes. all the stuff you're like, you look at it on the menu and, and even like the wine descriptions, it's like jockstrap. And right. <laughs> I like, wrote an article about them actually, right? Yeah. It was like Ashley Olsen, Edelweiss, uh, Spirit <laughs> Catchers. And you're like, oh, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, yeah, it really was. Now, um, do you have um, do you have kind of a, a pulse now or any feelers out about how this current restaurant crisis is affecting the queer community? So much of it is is built on community and being together and built around actual physical spaces, restaurants and bars and the ability to get together. I mean, have you seen any kind of specific impact or, or things that you can think of that have been of particular note? Yeah, I mean, 
It, it, I mean, yes, it, I, I find it incredibly worrying because all these restaurants in the like your queer directory and the ones that we're really excited to work with and promote in Jari Magazine are these like independently owned, fueled by passion restaurants that like have, they operate on the thinnest freaking margins. And so like during all this, I mean, I'm really worried about them and are the ones that are gonna still be standing at the end of this just because like they don't have much of a buffer. I have seen, I mean, it seems like a lot of queer restaurants, I'm thinking of like the Awkward Scone out in Bushwick is this great bakery owned by Eric C um, that we've worked with a couple of times and he's kind of turned his kitchen into a um, place to make meals for the California Center. So they I, they do hundreds of meals and deliver them to the California Center. So they're trying to like turn their kitchens into a service operation for, you know, the most vulnerable, vulnerable people in New York. Um, I've seen that like, Mimi's Diner, that, which we've also worked with a few yeah. times in Brooklyn, they've been really involved in helping provide, you know, the space. They've always been so supportive with their space, but like right now, trying to use their kitchen to help in, in ways that they can, even if it's just as like a place to hold meetings. Well, we're not, we're not doing meetings right now, but um, it seems like people are trying to do what they can. I also feel like there's just... I, I mean, I'm, I'm like, what, what do I do? I don't even, it's like trying to do what you can, but also like, what, what am I, I feel like I'm getting all these conflicting messages, like stay home, don't do anything. And then right. at the same time, you're like, there's just like so much need everywhere and you need like humans to do it. Um, so I think people are like grappling with like, what, what's the right thing to be doing right now as well. Yeah, I feel, I mean, from all from the work that I'm doing, uh, both as a journalist and also working with Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and as being a person who is in Greenwich Village and um, it's really like, I'm working, I don't wanna cook every night. <laughs> like, I'm really, I'm really busy, you know? So it's all of the, the kind of moral hoops and decisions you have to make as a consumer um, and then extrapolate that to like, a, to a business when they're taking care of their staff and making sure they're well and making sure you're creating the safest environment possible. Uh, but I think it really, it, dep it depends on who your workers are and who your neighborhood is. One restaurateur said, you know, my restaurant's in Soho. These people are not food insecure. <laughs> like they can go to the grocery store like you and I can and stock up for two weeks on ingredients and or they can go to a vacation home somewhere. I'm not going to put my workers at risk for people in Soho. But if you, you know, are in a food insecure neighborhood and or can serve a community who's in need or you have visa holders who are your employees and or undocumented workers who are your employees and don't qualify for benefits and you have you know you have another dilemma so yeah. so yeah. i'm i'm taking the stance that as long as people are making a true faith effort to to keep people safe um that i'm kind of supporting every, i'm supporting all of the above yeah good yeah um a good way to think about it uh, yeah, so so you've had six issues of Jari, is that right? Yeah. And with Fabulous, it was Elise Kornack was your last cover girl, yeah? Yes, her and her and, wife, Arna. And, yeah, and Hudson. So do you have do you have a lot of creative time for a next issue right now, or is that bubbling up anytime soon? We're kind of working on it. I've been I've been very busy with my my cookbook mm -hmm. coming up, and um, and it's also just the. It, this space has changed a lot since we launched where, you know, it used to be that, you know, this was like sort of a new novel concept to a lot of people, the idea of queer food or gay food. And now I think a lot of publications have been doing stories about 
you know, the queer food movement and whatnot. And, you know, when I first launched, we had to reach out to people to get them to be involved and chef, there weren't chefs that were really eager to be framed this way. And now we hear from their publicists. And so it's, right. like, it's just like a different space. And so I think there's been a little bit of recalibration in terms of like, okay, what are we aiming to do? I mean, we wanted to help legitimize this idea and I think it's been legitimized. There's certainly more history to explore. There's more people to, you know, that are doing amazing work that we want to celebrate. Um, but I mean, I think we've been having stepping back a little bit to see what um, what the next chapters of Jari are like. Yeah, that's that's also really exciting because you're right to see the transformation in in terms of coverage and the number of queer chefs who are you know identifying as such in public has transformed exponentially in the last five years. And the other, I mean, perhaps one of the other differences is that other marginalized communities don't always have a seat at the table and on in magazines or at publications and uh, you gay men have been there <laughs> all along in food media. It's like, it's so much of my food media family. So, it, you know, as long as now they have the, uh, the ability to tell those stories and share those stories. Um, I'm so like now I would be the, it's over hit the 30 minute mark. The casserole would be bubbling in the oven. Oh. I'd hear the timer go off. Do they really only bake for 30 minutes? We'll pull, it depends. I have a, um, I use, what is the convection function? So um. it depends. It depends. Some of them I'll leave in for a little bit longer if they need to get nice and crispy, right. but I'm remembering one of my mom's favorite casseroles right now, which was for, I, I think this would classify as a casserole, but it was Mexican lasagna. Oh, yes, a, yes. Okay, so the flour tortilla, <laughs> flour tortilla subbing in for um, pot, you know, lasagna noodles, and then refried beans, and I think, like, there must have been some kind of enchilada sauce or salsa. Mm -hmm. So much, like, pre-shredded cheddar and Monterey Jack cheese. And it was so good. My brother and I would always fight over the middle bites. They're like the middle square. Oh, the, the like mushy squares, not the edges? Yeah. You're not an edge man? No, not that. Now I'm more of an edge man, but at that time it was okay. like. Okay. <laughs> it's so, do you, what year were you born? Do you mind me 82. asking? 82, I'm 83. And I, I, last season I did a Southern Living cookbook from 83. S oh. Super bizarre. But oh. the number of like Mexican-ish <laughs> recipes and I'm I would be so fascinated to track like immigration patterns into different parts of the south and then the recurrence of these little ladies from it's not Texas it's like Mississippi and North Carolina and doing yeah. enchilada enchilada we call it enchilada pie in my in my house okay but same same concept yeah I think that I had had I think my mom had a recipe for enchilada pie as well okay <laughs> I think enchilada pie is the same thing as Mexican lasagna. It's the same thing as, I don't know. It's just people who are moms who didn't want to roll enchiladas, which is actually kind of a pain, to be honest, to fry oh. those tortillas and then roll them. And Well, this was like those flour tortillas, the really gummy ones. And yeah. then it was almost like a burrito casserole. More, I mean, it was the refried beans were like the marinara, the, like the red sauce mm -hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And it was actually really good. That was like one of our, that was probably one of our favorite things. So if you had, because I know you have cream cheese in your refrigerator right now, what, tell, what casserole would you make with ingredients that you have right now in your house? No rice bowls. You gotta, you gotta give me something with some dairy elements here. Right now. Okay. So I've got the cream cheese. 
I also, let's see, gosh. I've got a bunch of Swiss chard. <clears throat> I've got sandwich bread. I have not been able to find yeast. And I was so excited for this opportunity to like really start making bread. Do you need me to send you a pack? Oh, maybe. I will. I just got some. <laughs> we can okay. exchange mailing. I can send you. I can send you like two bags of yeast. Oh wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of like a greens sort of gratin thing, but with the okay. cream cheese and milk. It's almost like the. Is that the Lori Colwin cream spinach? Is that? I think it's just like evaporated milk that she uses, or something. But it's basically like greens submerged in dairy with like this sweet breadcrumbs on top. And I might throw a can of like chickpeas in there or two. A can of what? The audio broke up for just a second. Chickpeas? Maybe like a Italian chickpea sort of thing. Okay. Does that have enough structure to classify as lasagna? Not a casserole. Yes. As a casserole. casserole, Yes. Because you have, yeah, you have veggie, protein, dairy element, and crunchy topping. All right. Yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the on the cream today. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yeah, this is actually like the nicest part of my day because I'm going back to, <laughs> I'm researching stories on how to sue your insurers for not paying uh, um, business interruption claims. So I get to talk with that a bunch was, of litigation attorneys later today. I was just talking to a friend who's a lawyer and it was like, what's going on with work? And she was like, oh, it's pretty slow right now, but we're basically just bracing ourselves for like the flood of lawsuits that are going to be an outcome of this. Yeah. So that's my, that's my world after you and casseroles. Wow. Oh gosh. Good luck. Thank you. And enjoy. I hope you have some nice sunshine and some places to walk and take care of yourself. And uh, I do challenge you. You should make the casserole. I might do that. Yeah. I'll gram it if I do. Do it and gram it. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. Great to meet you officially and great to talk today. Yes, you too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. What's in the oven? Inspired by my talk with Lucas, I veered off from James Beard's casserole cookbook and made not one, but two casseroles. And for the first, I riffed on a concept of the rice bowl as casserole and mixed in some of the elements from Lucas's ideal Swiss chard cream cheese situation. This was a true scrape the bottom of the fridge meal and very truly, it was one of the best casseroles I've made all year long. Get started, combine two cups of cooked rice, two cups chopped chicken or another protein, you could do chickpeas here, two cups of a cream element. I used eight ounces of sour cream and one cup velouté, and that was made with chicken stock, splashy milk, of course, thickened with some flour. A handful of chopped feta, because I had it and I really wanted that salt element, a few bunches of blanched and chopped Swiss chard, any green would do here, chopped green garlic from the farmer's market, zest of one lemon because we are fancy, y'all. Mix it together, add it to a casserole dish, topped it with some breadcrumbs from the last of a loaf that was going stale, and baked it until bubbly. Now, for the second casserole, I texted Cindy, my mom, who tracked down for me her vintage enchilada pie recipe, which I doubled so that Mr. Nicholson and I could eat for days. Here is the formula for one recipe, serves four. Brown one pound of ground beef with one diced onion. Season with a teaspoon of salt, black pepper, and one tablespoon of chili powder. You're gonna wanna up those spice ratios. This is not 1993, we are not afraid of seasoning. Add to that 16 ounces of crushed tomatoes or tomato sauce, simmer to marry the flavors. 
and a circular dish. Layer two tortillas, flour or corn, meat sauce, cheddar cheese, and black olives. I used pickled jalapenos here because that's what I had on hand, and again, I like spice. You're gonna keep layering until you run out of six tortillas. They ask you then at that point to pour a half a cup of water on top. I do not think that's necessary. I don't understand why. Cover it, bake it for 20 to 30 minutes until it is almost ready. Remove the cover, brown the top a little bit, and serve. And that's what's in the oven. It's dinner time. Day three enchilada pie. <laughs> three days in a row? Yeah. Dinner, lunch. Dinner. Dinner, we skipped dinner last night. I mean, it's pretty delicious. It's like mostly chili-esque filling. Cheese and tortillas. Yeah, no, it holds up. Holds up nicely. I would say a nice spicy stand-in for a lasagna. Right. And much much easier than lasagna. You don't know because you've never made lasagna. It's much easier than lasagna. Which one time I made lasagna? Did you make lasagna one? No. Fuck no. <laughs> what are your favorite retro casseroles? You know, the ones you could actually crush three meals in a row. For me, that is mac and cheese, good old-fashioned lasagna, maybe some Mexican rice casserole. I don't know anything creamy. I'd love to hear about your favorites on Instagram and Facebook. And while you're there, be sure to follow at Jari Mag, that's J-A-R-R-Y-M-A-G, and Lucas at L-U-K-A-S-V-O-L-G-E-R. Thanks for joining this week. I'll be reporting more lockdown recipes in the weeks to come. Keep it creamy, y'all.